Wake up, honey. We have to leave. Roused from her slumber, the sleepy-eyed six-year-old asked, Daddy, what's wrong? Where are we going? Her frantic father, hoping not to alarm her, said we have to go up onto the deck. John Harper had already told Jesse Leach, Nana's nurse, niece to Harper's deceased wife, that the jolt felt earlier was their ship hitting an iceberg. He had left just moments ago to find out more information. By the time Miss Leach had gotten dressed, John had returned with the news that the order had been given to put on life belts. Should we change your clothes? Jesse asked. No, there's no time. John hurriedly wrapped his daughter in the blanket under which she had been sleeping and carried her out of their second-class stateroom. They made their way down the narrow corridors and up several flights of stairs onto the main deck. The reality of what had taken place was starting to set in. People were beginning to show signs of panic. The lifeboats that had been launched earlier, having only been sparsely filled with less than half their capacity, were now being filled completely, some people having even to stand in the unstable tiny boats. Fights and tussles began to break out on the deck as the crewmen that manned the lifeboat stations were only allowing women and children on board the lifeboats in accordance with strict maritime tradition. Jesse began to climb the emergency iron ladder up from the main deck to the upper boat deck where the lifeboats were being lowered. John, with Nana no doubt crying in fear and clinging tightly to her father's neck, followed up the ladder. The crew members at lifeboat number 11 on the starboard side were doing all they could to calm the situation, assuring the passengers over and over that there was no possible threat of the vessel sinking, that the sister ship, the Olympic, would be alongside any minute. The women and children were being put into the lifeboats only as a safety precaution and that the men would soon follow for there were lifeboats sufficient for all. Mrs. Leach was helped onto the boat first. Then John quickly kissed the forehead of his daughter and handed her to the crewman who then passed her to Jesse. Being a widow, John would have been allowed to accompany his daughter onto the lifeboat, but he didn't. When Nana saw her daddy was not following, she began to cry and scream, Daddy, Daddy, no, don't leave me. John tried to calm his baby girl by telling her that there was another boat for him and that he would see her soon. Then, through the blur of her tears, she saw her daddy turn and disappear into the crowd. As the rigging began to squeak and whir, and as the lifeboat lurched down toward the frigid waters of the North Atlantic, Nana could hear her father's booming voice over the chaotic crowd. Quote, Women and children and the unsaved in the lifeboats. Women and children and the unsaved in the lifeboats. I'm Ronnie Brown, and this is Forgotten. how Nana's disappointment immediately turned to pure joy and excitement when her daddy told her that he would be delaying his second trip to the United States by another week so that they could sail on the most famous ship in the world, the Titanic. She had never seen the United States, but waiting an additional week would be well worth it to sail on the luxurious liner that everybody was talking about. John Harper had been invited the year before to preach in America, 
word of this young Scottish pastor as being one of the finest preachers in Great Britain had reached the ears of the leadership at Moody Church in Chicago, Illinois. In the fall of 1911, Harper was invited to preach a three-week series of meetings at the large church made famous by the great evangelist D.L. Moody. But the three weeks turned into three months after a mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit's power through the preaching ministry of Harper. Concerning the three-month move of God, the Christian magazine Life of Faith said, quote, His services were attended with such rich blessing that the visit lengthened into three months, the Moody Church passing through one of the most wonderful revivals in its history, end quote. An attending pastor said, quote, God used him while he was here as I have never seen a man used before, end quote. As soon as the pastor returned to his home in London, he was greeted with yet another letter to return to Moody Church as soon as possible and to preach another three months. In the interim, the pastor of Moody Church, Dr. A.C. Dixon, had resigned after a call was extended to him from the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, the church made famous by the great Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon. The second invitation sent to Harper was no doubt in view of a call to pastor the historic church. It was all surreal. How was a young, 39-year-old, uneducated mill worker and street preacher on the cusp of pastoring one of the most noted churches in America and writing his name into the Moody legacy? John Harper was born on May the 29th, 1872, in Houston, a small village west of Glasgow, Scotland. He grew up under the godly influence of his mother and father, who were converted to Christ during the 1859 Ulster Revival that spread from Northern Ireland to the far reaches of the United Kingdom. By the time he reached the age of 13, deep spiritual impressions had been made upon his heart, and he was converted to Christ. The scripture that opened the door of his heart to faith in Christ was John 3.16 and its simple words, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It is here where young John Harper gained the assurance of his salvation in Jesus Christ. Although the Harper family was rich toward God spiritually, they were not wealthy monetarily. Of necessity, John had to forego a proper education to work in the many manufacturing mills that lay on the outskirts of Glasgow. But that did not keep him from studying his Bible daily and seeking to grow in his faith in Christ. When he was 18 years old, he experienced a spiritual breakthrough that would mark his ministry for the rest of his life. While sitting at home alone on a June afternoon in 1890, no doubt reflecting on the scriptural account of Christ's death on the cross, there came a great stirring of his soul, and a vision was given to him, one in which he saw Jesus nailed to and dying on the cross for his sin. And although he was quite familiar with what the scriptures taught, concerning the cross of Christ and his resurrection, Harper's heart was set ablaze with the realization of God's love for him and for the sinful world around him. As a result of this experience, a holy fire was kindled within him to declare the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, and an unquestioned divine commission was placed on his life. From the onset of attempting to live out this commission, Harper sought no pulpit in which to preach. To him, every street corner was an invitation to preach the gospel to all within earshot. 
took advantage of every opportunity to testify of the saving power of Christ both in and out of churches. Upon hearing him preach on the street, one local pastor said of him, quote, He was a great open-air preacher and could always command large and appreciative audiences. He could deal with all kinds of interruptions, his great and intelligent grasp of Bible truths enabling him to successfully combat all assailants, end quote. Shortly thereafter, Harper's white-hot zeal for the Lord caught the attention of a local group called the Baptist Pioneer Mission, who encouraged him to leave his work at the meal and give all his attention to evangelistic work on the street corners of Glasgow's industrial suburbs. This led to a work in the heart of Glasgow. In September 1897, he became the first pastor of the newly formed Paisley Road Baptist Church. There, assembled with a young preacher, was a handful of men and women, 25 in all, with a heart to reach their city with the gospel of Christ. They conducted open-air meetings and special mission services in summer's heat and winter's chill. And the ever-growing band of believers led by Harper continued to experience seasons of great harvest until after 13 years as their pastor, Harper followed the call of God to Walworth Road Baptist Church in London in 1910. When he left Paisley Road, the church had grown from the original 25 to over 500 members worshiping in a building that regularly required seating for 900 people. But amid such great success, Harper was no stranger to tragedy as well. Although he married Miss Annie Bell in 1904, and they welcomed a beautiful daughter born two years later, Miss Harper died not long after from a long bout with tuberculosis, or consumption as it was called, and complications arising from childbirth. The sadness of such a heartbreak might well have devastated the budding minister and father, but it only served to deepen his relationship with God. And out of such a place of loss, his preaching and praying seemed to have even more of the powerful touch of God. Although his ministry at Walworth Road Baptist Church in London would be brief, it was characterized as being greatly blessed to the Lord. But by the time he reached London, his reputation as a powerful preacher of the gospel had spread far and wide, and the call of Moody Church came only a little over a year into his ministry at Walworth Road. When it was time to make his second trip to preach at Chicago in 1912, he was originally intended to sail on the Lusitania, but made his decision to delay his journey by a week and sailed on board the famed Titanic. The Titanic was one of the wonders of the modern world. She weighed more than 46,000 tons and displaced 52,000 tons of water. Her engines generated a combined output of 46,000 horsepower with a top speed of 28 miles an hour. She was a floating palace filled with the most luxurious accommodations the world has ever seen on an ocean liner. When she set out on her maiden voyage at noon on April the 10th, 1912, she carried within her staterooms a galaxy of the most wealthy and famous people in the world of that day. And also, there among the second-class quarters, the Titanic carried a Scottish preacher his six-year-old daughter, and her nanny. The first four days of the voyage were without incident. During the day, there was plenty to do, from exercising in the gymnasium 
to playing a game on the squash court and even taking a dip in the seven-foot-deep swimming pool. Children ran, laughing and playing on the deck. Eva Hart, who was seven years old and also a second-class passenger, fondly remembered playing with little Nana on board the Titanic. She recalled that Nana, quote, was particularly fond of the large teddy bear which my father had bought for me only a few months previously. We must have made quite a spectacle for the other passengers as we dragged this big teddy bear with us all over the ship, end quote. At night, there was fine dining, music, as well as parties and dances into the wee hours of the morning. While we know nothing of John Harper's first three days on board the Titanic, we're given a brief but vivid account by Miss Leach of Harper's actions just hours before the sinking of the Titanic. She writes, quote, The last day we spent on the Titanic was Sunday. Mr. Harper asked me to read the chapter at our morning family prayers, and later we went to the Sunday morning services. The day was quietly and pleasantly spent, and when Nana and I went to look for Mr. Harper at six o'clock to go to dinner, I found him earnestly talking to a young Englishman whom he was seeking to lead to Christ. That evening, we went down to the staterooms. He read from the Bible and prayed, and so he left us, end quote. At 11.40 p.m. on the 14th of April, the starboard side of the Titanic struck an iceberg, creating a series of holes through which water poured into the lower levels of the ship. Five of the ship's watertight compartments were breached, and it was quickly becoming clear that the mighty boat would surely sink. Aware that women and children were now being loaded into lifeboats, John Harper took his blanket-wrapped daughter and her nurse to the lifeboat number 11. With little time to say goodbye, John quickly kissed his daughter, assured her that he would see her soon, and handed her over to crewmen to place on board the lifeboat. With one last look at his little girl, he turned and disappeared into the crowd. That would be the last time Nana ever saw the face of her father in this world. There was no black box recording all the sounds of that night. There were no surveillance cameras giving a visual of all that took place on the deck of the sinking ship. No audio recording, no voicemail messages left by frantic cell phone callers. All but a handful of passengers that were not safely in lifeboats died within a half hour of the sinking of the Titanic. So there were no frantic letters, no journal entries, no telegrams that clearly reveal the events that took place that night, much less what John Harper did in those final terrifying moments. In order to know what he did, we must know the man. Although there are no written accounts of John Harper's preaching, no written sermons from him, no letters of any length or substance to let us know what John Harper might have done that fateful night, we do have a handful of quotes from men that knew him. And these may prove to be all we need to know the make of this servant of God. George Harper, John's brother, said, quote, I have been with my dear brother in prayer again and again when his whole frame shook like an aspen leaf. So earnest was he in his pleadings with God for a perishing world. He often wept in prayer. Little wonder hard hearts were broken and stubborn wills subdued under his ministry, end quote. 
fellow pastor Malcolm Ferguson said, quote, I was often there during 1905 when the news of the Welsh revival spread. I did not go to Wales, but often saw scenes in Paisley Road similar to what we heard were going on there. The crowds were so great it was difficult to get in. Then, before anyone could speak ten minutes, souls were crying out for mercy under the mighty power of God. It was the Holy Spirit convicting of sin. One was forced to ask often, what is the secret of this perennial blessing in Paisley Road? But when in touch with the pastor in his vestry or in his home, the secret was soon found out. End quote. Pastor John Dick, John's successor at Paisley Road Baptist Church in Glasgow, said, quote, The passion of his life was soul winning. It was no unusual thing for him to never go to bed on a Saturday night pleading for souls and crying for divine power to enable him to preach for the glory of God, end quote. Evangelist W.D. Dunn said of Harper, quote, How often I have heard Pastor Harper say, when lying on his face before God, covered with perspiration, Oh God, give me souls or I die. Then he would sob and weep as if his heart would break, end quote. It seems as though there was never a question in his mind of what he should do. He never seemed to weigh out his destiny. What could accomplish more? Two decades of ministry as pastor of one of the most well-known and influential churches in America? Or a two-hour ministry among the chaos and cries of a sinking ship? In his mind, there was no doubt that the present souls slipping out into eternity all around him were vastly more important than the potential souls that could be reached out into the future. Upon leaving his daughter in lifeboat 11, John Harper was heard crying, women and children and the unsaved in the lifeboats, knowing that those unprepared to meet their maker were in far greater danger than he. He began to go through the crowds of people, asking them of their soul's condition, begging people to turn to Jesus Christ before it was too late. When his urgent gospel entreaty was rejected by one man, Harper took off his life belt and gave it to the man saying, quote, you need this more than I do, end quote. As the bow of the stricken vessel dipped lower and lower into the icy waters, Harper was seen gathering people around him on deck, kneeling down and, quote, with joy in his face, end quote, raised his arms in prayer to God, pleading for the salvation of souls. Up until his last moment on the ship, Harper implored people, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. By 2.20 in the morning, just two hours and 40 minutes after striking the iceberg, the bow of the Titanic had sunk so deep into the water that it raised the immense stern high into the air, so high that the keel of the ship snapped, basically breaking the Titanic into two. The stern plunged back down and leveled out for only a few minutes before it once again turned vertical and disappeared into the deep. 1,514 people, mostly men, but some women and children, were either taken down within the Titanic or left floating in the frigid waters of the North Atlantic Ocean. The water was a bitter 28 degrees Fahrenheit. Water so cold that the human body could not survive longer than a half an hour, dying more of cardiac arrest than of drowning. Reports suggest that within 15 to 30 minutes, 
everyone floating in the water was dead. But in that brief period, the sounds that emanated from the darkness of that spot could only be likened to the anguished cries of hell. The lifeboats, many of which were within a mile away, could hear the screams and cries of those grasping for their last moments of life. Eighty-one years later, Eva Hart, the little seven-year-old playmate of Nana Harper, said that, quote, The worst thing I can remember were the screams. And then the silence that followed. It seemed as if once everybody had gone, drowned, finished, the whole world was standing still. There was nothing, just this deathly, terrible silence in the dark night with the stars overhead, end quote. The legacy of John Harper would have indeed ended with these last few scenes of heroic desperation from the deck of the Titanic, were it not for one last glimpse several years later. In a book published by the pastor of the Central North Broad Street Presbyterian Church and the former president of Washington College, Reverend Dr. Aquila Webb, there is a detailed account that had surfaced later from a survivor of the Titanic. The account is as follows. Quote, Four years after the Titanic went down, a young Scotsman rose in a meeting in Hamilton, Canada and said, quote, I am a survivor of the Titanic. When I was drifting alone on a spar that awful night, the tide brought Mr. John Harper of Glasgow also on a piece of wreck near me. Man, he said, are you saved? No, I said, I'm not. He replied, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The waves bore him away, but strange to say brought him back a little later, and he said, Are you saved now? No, I said, I cannot honestly say that I am. He said again, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And shortly after, he went down. And there, alone in the night, with two miles of water underneath me, I believed. John Harper's last convert, end quote. This testimony indicates that John Harper's desperate crusade for the souls of men and women reached into the deathly cold waters of the sea, and with the name of the Lord Jesus on his lips, he exited this world and entered the next. In her statement of that evening's events, Miss Jessie Leach remembered, quote, that evening, before we retired, we went on deck and there was still a glint of red in the west. I remember Mr. Harper saying, it will be a beautiful morning, end quote. For John Harper, and no doubt many others whom he led to faith in Jesus Christ that night, it was a far more beautiful morning than they could have ever imagined, for they woke in the presence of their Savior, in a land that is fairer than day. Thank you.
as has been said many times, the tragedy of the sinking of the Titanic came down to two large boards posted just outside the Liverpool office of the White Star Lines in the days following its sinking. As relatives and friends of the Titanic passengers came by the hundreds to learn the fate of their loved ones, they looked intently at these two large boards. On one, the title read, Known to be Saved. On the other were the words known to be lost. Whether they were the wealthiest first-class guest aboard or the poorest third-class passenger on the ship, in the end, all that mattered was to which column their name belonged. In that hour of desperation, John Harper knew the power of the simple message he declared over the screams and cries of that fateful night. He knew its power was able to take a person from one column and put them in the other, from darkness to light, from blindness to sight, from death to life, from lost to saved. And whether he was in the great pulpit of Chicago's famous Moody Church, or among the drunken and wayward of Glasgow or London, or thrust onto the deck of a divine detour amidst an hour of desperate need, John Harper was not ashamed to declare this simple message of saving faith in Jesus Christ. Just as in the case of John Harper, we are surrounded by many that stand on the deck of a ship that is going down ever so slowly. Whether it is realized or not, many lives are sinking down into the depths of an eternal destiny separated from God in anguish and torment. And all the while, the only lifeline that can snatch one from the dark abyss of death, the lifeline of the good news of Jesus Christ, is within our grasp. Yet far too many stand frozen, just an arm's length away, either unwilling or unable to throw out the lifeline. We, like John Harper, must believe and live out the declaration of the Apostle Paul to the Roman believers in the first century of the Christian church when he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Forgotten is written and produced by me, Ronnie Brown. You can find out more about this show at ForgottenPodcast.com. I'm also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ForgottenPodcast. Forgotten is available on various podcasting apps such as iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Downcast. Be sure to stop into iTunes and leave a review. And as always, thanks for listening.